listen, let me be real with you. A lot of the issues that exist in our world is because we don't have enough women who have enough influence. Let's be real. But sometimes mm-hmm. I question that. Like, what are we doing, bruv? Like, what? How can you actually not see how so often is your assertion of your masculinity that's messing things up? Anyway. Welcome to Necessary Rebels. I'm Sandra, your host. This is a podcast series amplifying raw human stories, tackling racism and inequalities in life and in work. Do you want to know how to be actively anti-racist? Do you want advice on challenging racism? Do you know how to have those uncomfortable conversations? Then lean in and join me. Whether you're in the USA or the UK, we know that change is happening. So why not come along and be part of that change? Hi, welcome Lewis Howell. So nice to have you on the podcast today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Sandra. I mean, we're going to keep it all the way real from the start. I'm still Absolutely. jealous that you're, that you're in Miami and I'm in London, <laughs> but I'm okay with that. I've, I've accepted peace on that front. Listen, it's not my fault. I come from a place that everybody want a holiday in, you know, that's I know, what I say. I know. <laughs> so I was away over the Easter holidays. And when I came back, I got lots of emails from people saying, did you hear this talk by Lewis Howell? <laughs> did you listen to this? You need to go watch it on replay. And I was like, oh my God, who is he? <laughs> I was like, every, just so many people were saying, you've got to hear him speak. You've got to listen to everything he was saying. He was so on point. Uh, he knows exactly what he's talking about. And I had to listen and it was brilliant. Everything they said Thank was you. true. Everything you said was on point. But first, why don't you tell us who you are? So who is Lewis Howell? You know what? I, my, my answer to that question is always interesting. I normally just, on a, well, when I'm messing around, I say, honestly, I'm just a person trying to get air in my lungs like the rest of us, do you know mm. what I'm saying? But at the same time, if I was to distill everything that I think I do down, I've often said that I just believe I'm here to facilitate progress. And I say that because I think that progress exists across multiple dimensions, sectors, aspects of life and society. But really and truly, that's what I think my real contribution is, is to facilitate progress of humankind in many ways, but definitely within specific communities. So one of the organizations that I run is called 7PK and our work focuses on two main things, which is social mobility and equity, diversity and inclusion. So we design programs, we train organizations to build their capacity to be able to do work in those areas more effectively. We also do some on-the-ground delivery with beneficiaries as well, especially in the social mobility space more than anything. But 7PK's real mission is to help people from disadvantaged communities to have more equity within society. So that's 7PK. And then my other social enterprise, which exists in the education sector, is called Revolution Hive. So me and two friends of mine, we set out five years ago and the mission there is to equip young people for life beyond the classroom. So we go into schools, colleges, universities, up and down the country, and we run workshops and programs that focus on three main things. So personal development, which is your common stuff to do with, you know, mindset, motivation, resilience, confidence, etc. Social leadership. So that includes things like understanding how politics and democracy works or understanding how the mainstream media influences us or challenging gender stereotypes so we can decrease things like toxic masculinity. And then the third area is global citizenship. So that's where we look at things like poverty and racism and the climate crisis and ethical consumerism and stuff like that. So Revolution Hive, you know, in the last five years that we've been running, we've worked with, I think the number's about 15,000 young people now 
And it's just interesting being able to expose them to some of these topics that admittedly you don't learn that much in school. And you also probably think, how do you navigate this as an adult? But being able to take them on that journey has been interesting. Outside of my professional life, I do also volunteer with a charity called 100 Black Men of London. So I'm a proud member of the 100, been a member for four years. And I also am a trustee of another small charity called One Degree Mentoring. I chair a couple of boards, so specifically one is with the Canal and River Trust, for example. So yeah, I'm just literally trying to look at different ways for me to be able to contribute to different parts of society. But with the real thing that ties it all together being what does progress look like for individuals and communities? Is there a focus on people of colour or is this open to everybody? In regards to, say, let's take 7PK, right? We're working with organisations who, yeah, they might, for example decide to hire us in order to do internal anti-racism training or equalities training but of course they might be an organization that is predominantly white Mm -hmm. so from that standpoint when we're getting asked to do things in the EDI space you're working with whatever organization feels that they're ready to start to go on this journey of equalities and anti-racism and anti-oppression even in the social mobility space yeah we have got some programs that we're running at the moment directly with beneficiaries where we've targeted the beneficiaries to be those who are young people from racialized backgrounds Mm. so for example we've just finished a program that was actually being run in the borough of lewisham in london which is where i'm from which is great so that was kind of like a homecoming for me because i've been doing so much work nationally (laughs) that i wasn't really doing much in my Mm. in my place you know i mean where i came (laughs) up which was fun um but you know that was with a group of young people aged 16 to 20 who were all bar one were black as well. And that was interesting because, again, you're navigating the dynamics of high levels of ambition, but also them, even at that age, being very aware of some of the barriers they face, but the progress they've made and the fact that they've taken it upon themselves to do their own project, where they're now actually going about running workshops for other young people in the borough of Lewisham who are younger than them about personal and social development is just immense in my opinion with Revolution Hive we're we're in schools up and down the country so yeah there's no specific demographic we're targeting the only thing that I would say we predominantly focus on is more work in deprived areas Mm. I say that but then even though Revolution Hive is eligible for funding we don't actually go for funding we actually do all of our work through trade you know the schools or the organizations in the education sector actually commissioning us to come in or paying us to come in so we're not therefore saying well we are only going to work with young people from these backgrounds we're actually open to all and regardless of where we go (laughs) the need is still there and that's usually due to the deprivation that a lot of those young people are facing Yeah, absolutely. And I guess doing it that way makes it a lot more sustainable as well. You mentioned toxic masculinity. Mm. When you say that, what do you mean by that? Because there are so many kind of definitions. And when I think of toxic masculinity, I always think of kind of aggression. They're just these kind of words that come up in my mind. It stems from a warped perspective of how masculine energy and masculine traits go about being able to be used within day-to-day life Mm -hmm. as they navigate society. So when I say a walked perspective, I distill it down to three Ps. And one of the things you'll notice about me, Sandra, I mean, you've seen it from when I do training and stuff a little bit, but I tend to always try and distill things down into the three this or the four this, but like the three Ps that I find with regards to toxic masculinity are patriarchy, possessions, and physicality. Mm -hmm. So when I say walked perspective, what I mean is family dynamics, group dynamics, society itself is supposed to have men be the ones who have the most power, which I think whether people admit it or not, a lot of those people who display toxic masculinity, in my opinion, it is because 
their understanding of masculinity and the fact that they've lived in a patriarchal society for such a long time and have probably a lot of underlying beliefs and perceptions and attitudes and things that are so patriarchal has led them to therefore not really appreciate the balance that's required and the appreciation of not only feminine energy but feminine traits and all of that listen let me be real with you a lot of the issues that exist in our world is because we don't have enough women who have enough influence let's be real do you get what i'm saying that's that's what it comes down to sometimes i question like what are we doing bruv like what but how can you actually not see how so often is your assertion of your masculinity that's messing things up but anyway patriarchy being one of them possessions being another so from when i observe toxic masculinity being displayed it may also come in the form of men also boys admittedly thinking that their worth is tied to the possessions they have does that mean they shouldn't look to build individual wealth of course not but what it does mean is that their understanding of what makes them valuable when we talk about possessions because even then some of the possessions they have are big liabilities it's not helping their wealth anyway but what i mean is for example being able to flaunt having this particular let's say for some of the boys i speak to piece of clothing or them being able to drive a certain type of car or them being able to have a certain accessory or whatever it may be often with a view that that makes them better than either another man or makes them more therefore more attractive and desirable for in some cases a woman but of course it might be that you've also got people who are interested in people who are of the same sex or gender which is fine too but either way they're tying their worth to the possession and that's what's quite interesting in terms of that toxic masculinity then from a physicality standpoint this is not necessarily consistent at all times across every single boy or man who may be displaying toxic masculinity but sometimes you have it in terms of their belief that their body structure and or body parts have to be a certain way in order for them mm. to be seen as a real man no it's really interesting so the kind of example you gave do you believe that's much more what you find in black communities or are you saying this is what you're finding in all communities across the board it's interesting because i think when i first started to do my own reflections i thought it was predominantly within the black community but mm. through observation as well as conversation because i meant again dialogue is important as we know i mean that's exactly why you have such a great podcast because you're engaging in meaningful dialogue through dialogue i've also realized when i speak to friends those who are from different communities as well actually some of these things are consistent across a range of different communities what it's driven by though is also interesting because then i did start to think but is it actually the intersectionality between race and class that makes mm -hmm. this more prevalent but then you mm -hmm. realize that actually no even those who are in wealthier classes you still sometimes see these things being displayed and being consistent so it's very interesting but the, the traits you mentioned that are more intangible such as the aggression you know what I mean? Self-entitlement, that kind of... Ah, uh, yeah. just about to mm. say the entitlement. There we go. <laughs> it's that, which is also toxic. But I, as I said, I would link a lot of that to the patriarchal aspect. It's almost that this expectation that you must have that level of power, that level of influence and be expected to be the one who's going to make the decisions and no one question it or challenge it or... Do you know what I mean? And as I said, for some people, it's still quite subconscious. It's still quite unconscious because they don't even realise necessarily that they're doing it. And... Hence why the word journey that you used earlier is such an important one, because it's true. People need to be taken on a journey to at least even become aware that this is happening. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And it's funny, do you know what? I'm sorry, I know I'm talking a lot, but there's an organisation I'm working with at the moment in the context of equalities. And toxic masculinity is, in my opinion slowing the progress they could be making now bear in mind they're making amazing progress considering we only started working with them like four months ago and we've done a load of different training from 
the foundations of anti-racism to courageous conversations to defining inequality. We've done so many things, but what's interesting is I see, especially at leadership level, but across the organization full stop, a predominantly white organization where maybe a few, but very few of the white women have been resistant to this work. A lot of them have been willing to question themselves, lean into it, all of that. But then a large number of white men who have noticed the kind of resistance saying, oh, no, I don't, I don't see why this is important. And it's causing friction. And their CEO, bless her, she's so passionate about this work. And she's a white woman. And she's just like, Lewis, like, this is stressing me out. And I'm saying to her, like, look, and I'll be honest, you don't need to worry too much. I know it's frustrating now, but most of those people won't stay here. Their own toxic masculinity is going to cause them to leave. And it's annoying whilst they're here right now. But me and you both know most of them won't be here after Christmas mm-hmm. because they will realise they either have to step up and really start to appreciate the journey you're going on as an organisation or decide, do they want to work here? So it's just interesting how the toxic masculinity can get linked into even those aspects of work as well. Absolutely. And we see it every day, don't we? <laughs> every day. For sure. Tell me, are there any stories you'd like to share that made a big impact, really big impacts on your life? Like growing up, was there anything that stood out for you? For me as an individual, I didn't realize this until more recently when I started to like do training and learn more about personality types. And, you know, people have different views on, you know, things like personality assessments and whatever. But what I always found interesting was that when I was young, I was often being put in leadership positions. But I don't know if I was a natural quote unquote leader. Now, I know leadership comes in different styles, but what I mean by that is I wasn't necessarily that assertive decision maker who you know would say right this is the vision this is what we're going to do yet I was always for example if you take the fact that I used to play football when I was young and for any American listeners we're talking about soccer right but I was often the captain of the team but then I look back and I was like but I wasn't the assertive leader that was like this is how we're going to do it I think I was in leadership positions because I really cared about everybody else now that actually ended up in my opinion shooting me in the foot a little bit when it came to football because I realized that as you go up football becomes more competitive in terms of you need to stand out if you're going to get scouted in order for you to get a trial at the club, in order for you to be able to potentially get a contract. And whereas I realised that that probably didn't always sit well with me because my head was always on, but what about the team? And what about, no, but we should be, we should do it like this so that everybody succeeds. And do you know what I mean? And which is obviously not always the best in the sporting context, even though football's a team sport. But the reason I bring this up is because I remember there were a, a couple of times when I'd spoken to coaches who said to me, um, yeah, we had a match the other day. And there was actually a scout there from a team that really liked you. And I said, okay, so when do I go on trial? They said, no, nah, I told them you're not quite ready yet. And I remember being quite frustrated, you know, Sandra, because I was thinking, how can you tell them on my behalf what I'm ready for or not? But it was interesting because when I look back now, I'm actually grateful they did that because I don't think I would have appreciated football as much if I'd gone to those places because I would have got to an environment where it was a lot more cutthroat. It was a lot more brutal to an extent. That may have served me well, but I also think they probably had a little bit of a better understanding about who I was as a person than I realised in the sense that they were like, we still want him to appreciate the game. We also know that this is probably helping him grow as a person. And whether he makes it as a professional footballer or not, there's something about who he's becoming as a person that they probably saw in me a long time before I even saw things in myself. So when I look back now, some of those same coaches who I've probably developed frustration for at one point, I look back now. And I go, you know, I'm so grateful for that. And whenever I see them on a social media platform, I always hit them up and say, I appreciate you. You know, I just want to let you know, because some of those decisions I realize now in the long run help me because there's so many skills I learned from when I used to play that sport that I really find benefit mm-hmm. me today. To get more specific, though, <laughs> I don't think I've told this story often, you know, but basically, yeah. 
my grandma on my mum's side, so I'm half St. Lucian, half Jamaican, yeah. And my grandma on my mum's side, the St. Lucian side, I remember she always used to say, I'm not dying until I go to Disneyland. Because she was a kid at heart. She was like the perfect example of maintaining her inner child. And that's what I loved about <laughs> my grand. I think I must have been 16 when we went to Florida. But it happened because she said, I don't know about you lot. I'm going to Disneyland. Now, bear in mind, this is the same granny who's had a stroke, yeah, and is now in a wheelchair. So when she goes places, she's not going on her own. So everybody has to go in it. <laughs> so then we end up all going to Florida because she said, I'm going to Disneyland. Make it happen. I love it. I love it. I love that. And then what happened was we had such a good trip that I got our auntie and uncle, so my mom's brother and his wife, they had been together for like 20 something years and decided we want to get married. So where did they go and get married? Florida. Because they had such a good time three years before. I thought to myself, look at the influence she had there. So we went first time 16, three years later, I'll go back for the wedding this time. We arrive in Florida, we're staying in some villa with the whole family. There's like 14 of us or something in this place. Now, Sandra, I haven't eaten McDonald's since I was, I'm going to easily say 13 years old. So it's been a long time since I've eaten McDonald's. Now everyone's hungry, but we haven't got self-catering. So we haven't gone and done any shopping yet. So people said, oh, what's the closest place they see McDonald's? Now I said, okay, that's fine. I'll come, but I'm not buying anything. So... At the time, my dad's like to me, oh, you should get something. You're probably hungry. I said, no, I'm good. And then he said it to me again. And I was like, no, 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 dad, I'm fine. Honestly, I don't want anything. Then he said it to me a third time. Now, I don't think I was very good at holding my temper back then, but I literally just turned around and I said, I'm a big man, you know, you don't need to tell me what I'm going to eat and not eat. In my head, I'm thinking, that's not really the best way to talk to your dad, oh, but I'm 19 minutes. I'm, I'm kind of right an adult still. Yeah, I know, right I know, I know. I don't know what I was thinking, Sandra. <laughs> let me not lie. But it's probably because I'm hungry. I'm tired as well. Do you know what I mean? Go back to the house, do what we're doing. Next day, I remember I got up in the morning, I just finished making breakfast and granny came into the living room and she just said, Lewis, come here. I said, I said, what's up, granny? She said, sit there. I sat next to her. She goes, are you a big man? I go, well, you know, I'm an adult. Do you get what I'm saying? She's like, okay, so you're a big man. I said, well, what exactly do you mean? She said, are you your parent's child? I said, yeah. She said, so do you think in their eyes you're a big man? I said, well, no. She said, don't ever let me hear you talk to your dad like that again. From then I said, yeah, do you know what? <laughs> That's it, it. I said, yeah, granny's got this one still. But that was really impactful for me because I realised that I actually had developed a bit of a trait going back to the football days as well as two stories are linked where my relationship with definitely authority figures, but also just adults in general, wasn't going to be as healthy as I wanted it to be if I didn't humble myself at that moment. Because I was always an intelligent young person who felt as if I wasn't really very well understood. You know, you always have like, those two teachers in school that you feel like they get me and so I always had that but I used to feel a bit like nah man too many of these adults just limit us as young people but granny helped me to realize in those moments that listen everybody's on a journey doesn't matter if someone's an adult and you're young or whatever you need to still maintain respect and humility because guess what they also don't have all the answers but if you humble yourself you can create answers together and I just say that was a very significant moment for me and I always think back to that moment because it impacted my life so significantly 100%. Mm, absolutely it's respect right and how we show up Mm, (laughs) i love granny granny is like my favorite person you would have loved her you'd have loved her (laughs) i love her what does it mean to be a black man in these spaces so in all of the spaces that you're commanding what does it mean to be black and in those spaces for me when i think about it for those people who are on a journey of being able to explore anti-racism one of the big things that You'd know as well, Sandra, of course, that Ibram X. Kendi talks about in How to Be Anti-Racist quite early on, actually, in the book is the importance of Black people not necessarily feeling like they carry the burden of representing the Black experience everywhere they go, because that is actually a fruit of white supremacy, right? That is what ends up happening. So I say what I'm about to say, not because I feel I'm carrying the burden, but because I take pride in being a Black man who personally 
I am very aware that I am, first of all, born in England, which in many ways provides me a level of privilege in comparison to people who may also be from the Black community but have migrated to England, those generations that came before me as well. Do you know what I mean? So I carry a level of privilege, but also a very big awareness that because it has now become, quote unquote, cool in some ways to engage with Black culture, I think one of the big things for me being a Black man in this space nowadays is about being able to demonstrate the aspects of Black culture that often get popularised, commercialised, and especially the way in which Black men may be portrayed in mainstream media is about ensuring that I do not actively live up to those stereotypes for the sake of it making me feel more accepted, but more importantly, to demonstrate that as a Black man, I can be authentic. I don't necessarily feel as if I have to go about being able to fit a narrative. Now, I do obviously appreciate there are a number of Black men as well who are still navigating the fact that actually, if we were to look at some of the, not only narratives, but actual preferences that were being displayed in aspects of British society, probably in American society, stuff like that, where for some people being in a relationship with a black man was seen as, oh, it's a bit more dangerous, isn't it? It's a bit more, some of them are still navigating that. Some of them are still trying to like, go, hold on a second, why can't I just be seen as who I am as a person? So I think for some people that apprehension for how they show up in certain environments comes from some of those particular dynamics that still exist. So I appreciate there's that going on, but I think we do have an opportunity now at the moment as black men to really go about being able to demonstrate that we all don't fit one particular narrative and stereotype. Your question was, what does it mean to be a black man? I'm going to say, well, what do black men need to be doing? And I know I'm not necessarily in a position where my particular word has to be seen as bond, but one of the things black men definitely need to be doing is ensuring we're going above and beyond to ensure that black women are being uplifted, empowered, supported in the best way possible. I'm not in any way alluding to the fact that we don't do that. Of course not. But I'm just saying that because of intersectionality, where we live in societies that are both racist and sexist, we have to acknowledge the fact that their oppression is going to be different and more multi-layered. So Mm -hmm. we need to ensure we're doing our part, as do everybody else that's listening from other communities who need to also be allies. So, yeah, I'm just saying that's one of the things that Black men also need to be super conscious of. Listen, I think it's so important. I'm raising a Black son and he's a feminist. And for me, that was really important for him to really understand what it meant for him to have a Black mother, right? Mm -hmm. What it means to be a mixed race boy in this world. It's interesting because it's so easy when you're growing up. And I think I did this a lot. I have parents who admittedly, they're not together anymore. I don't think I was aware enough and I was aware, but I don't think I necessarily took on the responsibility enough is probably a better way of putting it for acknowledging my mum's experience. I think it's very easy sometimes for black boys growing up to liken their mother with strength and resilience and this, but not acknowledge, well, why is she having to be so strong? Why is she having to be so resilient? What is causing that to occur like what are the systems the structures now that might sound like a lot for a young boy to take on or a young girl to take on if she's for example a daughter of a black mother but really being able to unpick some of that would have been good but it's interesting because as I've gotten older and obviously started to learn about things in these spaces I've been able to observe a lot more and actually go right you know what growing up I don't think my mum had very high self-esteem at all now credit to my mum she deserves all the credit because she's done a lot of work in the last I'd definitely say 
eight to 10 years to go on a journey where she's starting to grow in self-confidence and self-esteem and, and all of that. And I love it. And I just, I'm here for it. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm mm-hmm. so here for it. And she's just owning her decisions and all of that. But I remember a few years back when she was turning 50 and I was like, oh, I want to throw her a birthday party. And so I said, oh, do you know what? I'm going to hire a boat on the Thames and then we're going to do a boat party. And then like credit to my sister, she also played a part as well. I remember saying, yeah, you know, mum, so it's not a big boat, just 120 people capacity. She's like, oh, that might be too big. You know, like I said, mum, you, you don't think we can put 120 people on a boat? Do you know who you are? I had to ask her, do you actually know who you are? Like, first of all, our family on the St. Lucia side is ridiculous, Sandra. We can click our fingers and there's 300 people in a room. That family is large. <laughs> but second of all, yeah, it's ridiculous, Sandra. I'm not even joking. I think that's why my uncle and auntie really got married in Florida because if they got married here, it would have been like carnival in West London. Do you get what I'm saying? It would have been ridiculous because they know everyone. My uncle, you see that uncle I'm talking about, my uncle Pat, my mum's brother. You can't walk street with him in West London, you know. You've got to write off your day. If he says, yeah, let's just pop to Halsden quickly. We're not going to Halsden quickly. We're going to Halsden for the day because he knows everybody. But what I'm saying is, even beyond that, I'm like, mum, do you actually know who you are and how much people love you? Like, what are you talking about? It was at a point where I was sitting there with the list, like, all right, we're at 200 now, so now we've got to start cutting people down because we ain't going to fit everyone on this boat, innit? Do you get what I'm saying? Mm. So she was like, right. And then on the day now, everybody's there having a good time. She's crying, saying thanks to everybody for coming out. And in my head, I'm thinking, I hope this is a day when you realise who you are in this world. I really need you to actually understand who you are mm. because you're not believing First and foremost, that you're a great person. But second of all, how much people's lives you've touched. That's an example of me having that so close to home. I've been able to observe it. And then I look at my sister's journey right now, my younger sister, and I go, okay, cool. So where's she at? What's mm-hmm. she having to navigate? And similarly, I would classify myself as a feminist 100%. But when me and my sister have conversations about gender equality and things like that, she's obviously a lot more cutthroat. Like, yeah, but men are trash, in it? So... And I'll be like, okay, let's explore that. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's really explore that. that. Where does that come from? And a few times I've had to explain to her that, you know, I appreciate the underlying thing, but by you saying that, you could actually be turning away allies if you're not careful. So I just said, just be careful of that because, you know, she's like, yeah, but if they take offense, that's up to them. That's not up to me. And I'm like, again, I hear where you're coming from. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you're going on a journey to create progress, you need allies. And so you might be turning away some people that are ready to get in the trenches with you, innit? Do you know what I'm saying? So I said, I'm happy to stay in the trenches, innit? But certain men were on the fence and now they feel like boy if I put one foot wrong I'm done here do you know what I mean so you got to be careful of that but where does the frustration come from and how do I better understand that because I can just tell her what she's doing wrong or I can try to understand why she feels like that that's the main thing for me right now so it's very interesting very interesting yeah no it is really interesting and I believe raising boys to really understand the full humanity of women and girls right yeah and I really wanted my son to really trust my voice his mother's voice and to really Mm. understand my anger my love and how that can be extended to other women and girls around him So really getting him to understand that. And I think I've done that. That was a real important part of my parenting with him is for him to understand that because there's so many stories coming out in his ex-friendship groups of toxic masculinity that's happening around him. And Mm. luckily for him, he notices that as well. So he can spot that and he can call people out on it. Credit to him, man. He's amazing. Lovely guy. <laughs> so you came to us, you did a session on cultural variety and competence, I think. It really brought in a lot of people. We had over a hundred people on the call and people were really interested and had lots of questions. And as I said, this is part of our anti-racism journey. So tell us, tell me what that what it means. The work you guys have been doing as a prerequisite to that session and obviously as a follow-up to that session has probably increased people's appetite for such opportunities. 
So actually, I can't take all of the credit because it really does come down to the wraparound work you're doing and the consistency of work you're doing. But in terms of answering your question about cultural variety and competence, I think it comes down to this. It's so easy to make blanket statements that are very idealistic, such as everyone's created equal and everyone should be treated the same. In an ideal world, completely agree. The fact of the matter, though, is that as human beings, we are acutely aware of our differences. Now, if we allow them to solely be differences, if we're not careful, differences can become divides. What variety is about is being able to value those differences so that we can look at how they all come together to be able to help us to have improved experiences, help us to be able to produce better outcomes, help us to be able to understand one another in a way that's more effective so that long-term we build healthier relationships within organizations, within communities, within families, etc. And that's what cultural variety and competence is about. It's about being able to understand the fact that we all have different aspects of our identity that we're coming into spaces with. How can we go about acknowledging the fact that someone has a different aspect to their identity, be it their race, their ethnicity, their migrant status, their gender, their sexual orientation, whatever it may be. All of these things make up parts of our identity. So how do we therefore think about the different cultures that come with being from some of those communities and falling into some of those demographics, acknowledging those, and then look at, well, actually, how does that make us better collectively? So yeah, that's how I would define it. I like that. I think Without cultural competency, it's impossible Mm. to build those relationships. And we live in a place where there's so many people from all over the world, right, that come together. It's a real Mm. melting pot. London is a real melting pot. And I think it's important that we we coexist with people that we get to talk to about this stuff and that we get to understand. But we just can't have that without having those kind of conversations to begin with. And that's what that session did. It opened up the opportunities for us to ask those questions. So people were saying, because I think I mentioned I was from Haiti in that session. And I got lots of people contacting me and said, oh, I've been reading about Haiti. I mean, lots of things. We won't go into Haiti now because they've been another earthquake and it's, it's, it's anyway, it's not been very good, Mm. but lots of people really wanted to understand what that meant. They hadn't met another Haitian person before and people were much more curious. And I think we've got to do that. We've got to be able to have those conversations. So we understand each other. We have a better understanding of who we are. Can we actually not skip over the point about Haiti if it's okay with you, Sandra? I want to ask you first, just out of respect, we're not going to go into Mm. too much depth, but more to make people aware of the fact that there is something they can do to help in a time like this. And Bookman Academy and the Island Girls Rock are two brands that have managed to build solid links on the ground in Haiti to ensure that any financial donations and material donations are actually getting to the people that need Yeah, absolutely. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because... I know the first session I did with Camden Council, the one you're talking about when you were away for Easter, I referenced the volcano that had erupted in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And the fact that actually this is something you need to acknowledge is that some people are coming to work knowing that there are things going on in their community that they probably very rarely get a chance to talk about. They might also draw comparisons between when an issue exists in either another part of the world or is relevant to another community that gets so much love and attention 
but then the stuff to do with their community gets overlooked. They're carrying that to work. And are you aware of the fact that that might be in some way affecting them? And because I brought up the volcano in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, then some people were literally in the chat like, oh my gosh, this happened a few days ago. I haven't had a chance to talk about it at work at all. People were throwing in links to donate. Other people saying, oh my gosh, where can I send money? Where can I do? How can I help people from outside of our community? And I just think it's at a time like this when people can really help. Now, beyond the immediate helping, which is the financial donations that I hope people now look to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of scam donation sites as well. So we want people to be really careful about where they're donating because we want the money to actually go to the people of Haiti. So Hope for Haiti, it's a very good uh, place to donate. There's also UH UK. There's the Tiki Bar, which is the only Haitian restaurant in the UK, and they're doing charity drives. Uh, it's called the Tiki Grill, and I will add all those details on the text of the podcast so people will be able to just click the link and go directly to these sites. But yeah. And I'm going to own it, actually. Do you know what? Because I think, obviously, you're aware, Sandra, but when the volcano did um, erupt in St. Vincent, and that was devastating for a number of people over there, um, I, another brand that I have, which accidentally kind of came in, it became an enterprise called Success Through Soka. So I use Soka Music mm-hmm. as a vehicle to support people with their personal development and self-improvement. I don't know how, but in the space of like a week, I managed to turn around doing a full day fundraiser for St. Vincent. And I remember as soon as this occurred in Haiti, I was like, this mm. needs to happen again. Like we, we can do a fundraiser. I know we can do more if we do it again. So let's do it. I'm Listen, do it. I'm in. I'm gonna, so let's do it. We'll, we'll talk, we'll talk outside of this. And we'll, we will do it. So watch this space mm. to our listeners. Listen, it's been such a joy talking to you. I mean, I, I feel like we've kind of covered so many areas. I feel like we just started talking, you know, that's what I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh man. We could oh, go man. on. We could go on and on and on. So what's the thing that you've learned on this journey? Up until this point, what's the thing that you've learned? I think the biggest learning for me, if we're taking it, and you could tell me if I'm being too specific here, but you really have to invite people. And what I mean by that is for a lot of the organizations I work with, even if they've had an experience of trying to do something in this space before, they may have worked with training companies or partners who have taken a very much a cookie cutter approach to this particular area of work or taken a very informative approach. Now, is the informative approach necessary? Yeah, people need the information. They do need to understand legislation and policy and this and that. But what I've noticed is that to really move the needle, you need to balance the role of being a trainer, a facilitator, and a coach so fluently that it actually produces the change needed. Why? Because there are a number of people who, at first, when you enter this space of work as an organization, as teams, whatever it is, are hesitant about making mistakes or maybe even subtly embarrassed about their lack of understanding. So what you have to do is invite people to a space that feels safe and welcoming enough to be able to actually do the level of exploration they need to do at an individual level and then collectively so that the particular organizations we're talking about that we want to see become more inclusive and more equitable actually can start to do that as a result of people feeling as if actually you know what this is a space where I can Mm. make the mistakes where I can ask the hard questions where I can show that I'm confused where I can probably say something that might be Mm. controversial but it's going to be welcomed that for me has been the biggest learning it's being able to create that Mm. kind of atmosphere by playing that almost like trilingual role do you know what I mean it's like a tree out of things there so that's been my biggest learning and I would encourage anyone else in this space to just really think about that you know how do you ensure you're combining training with facilitation with coaching in such a way that allows people to feel safe on this journey and be able to really go 
introspective, but also share openly as collectives as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm creating something called solidarity spaces. So I think I told you I created safe spaces within my organization. And we now have like LGBT spaces. We've got allyship spaces, but I'm starting in September some solidarity spaces where everyone can come together and do exactly that. So it's a space that people can talk openly. They won't be judged. You can make mistakes, right? I'm learning on this journey too. Um, We're all learning that we're going to all make some mistakes. I mean, it's just, it's not possible to get it right every single time, but that's how we learn, Mm. right? And as long as we're willing to do that, then that is the trick. That's the thing that's going to get us to the next level, to the next step. And then we can start to create things that become part of the fabric of the organization. So nothing can change it. When Sandra's gone, it's still here, right? It's still part of everything that we do. So true. Can I ask you a question to finish? Yeah, sure. Is that right? <laughs> sure. At the moment, and you can say this based on maybe things you've reflected on recently, or maybe right now there's mm. something more recent, but what's giving you the most hope? at the moment? The hope for me is that in 10 years time, my son will notice a real difference. My daughter's a bit older, so she's much more closer to my generation, but he will notice there's a huge difference in the way that he is treated in the world, that he'll There won't be any issues, you know, being followed in a supermarket by security because he's a black man in a store. I hope that those things are going to change for him, that he will be much more accepted for who he is. Mm. For me, that's that's the goal. Right. Like, I mean, I think I read somewhere they said that we are not going to notice changes in organizations where black people, uh, people of color are in those top positions until 2046. Lewis, that's a long time. That's a whole long time. That's a long time. I am probably not going to be around. Listen, I'm on the veranda in St. Lucia come then, <laughs> I'll tell you that now. I mean, who got that much time? Like, no, no I, like we need to do the work now. And if that's what they're saying is going to happen in 2046, so what does the work look like now? So for me, it's about putting in all the necessary work right now to make sure by damn it, like by 2046 that we are already there. Like, do you know what I mean? And so my kids, my grandkids are noticing a difference that they are not having to experience what we are experiencing, what the world has been like for us, but that the world is different for them. That's the drive, right? It's interesting you say that because I'm sure, let me show you if I can find this stat. I'm sure I saw a stat that said something like, yeah, it was the World Economic Forum who, this was based on gender. In, In fact, it said, if we continue at this pace on the gender front, it will take 90 years to achieve true change and or equality. And now, obviously, I don't know the basis of some of these <sighs> like figures, but mm. it was like, that's that like a current pace in terms of gender. Do you know what I'm saying? So you then add a race to that as well. Yeah, it's deep. Honestly, it's deep. I just, you just, I'm just going to cry. Like, it's just mm. like... And there's me trying to ask what's giving you hope and <laughs> we've made you cry. I'm sorry, Sandra. Look at this. Look at this. There's work to do. Lewis, there's work to do. There there's is. work for all of us to do. And... I just hope everyone who's listening, everyone who's on the journey with us realizes what their work is and that they just get on with it. Let's just do the damn work. Yeah, I'm on the journey and I feel like I'm fighting a cause that's going to be good for everybody. I feel like when we're winning, everybody's winning. There are definitely changes happening and we are noticing the differences. We can go back a year from now. I'll give you a, just a tiny little example. And this is a, a personal example. 
something happened to me, a microaggression was done towards me in my job and it really upset me, really Mm. upset me. And I spoke to one of my managers who's a white manager and, you know, I was talking about what happened and she said, without me prompting her, she said, I wonder if this would have happened to me as a white member Mm. of staff. And I thought, you know what? My job is done. (laughs) If she can think of my lived experience in this moment without me prompting her, she's been listening. I see. She's on this journey too, right? Because it's it's all of our work. It's not just my work. It's all of our work. And for me, that was a real pivotal moment. And I just thought people are listening and they're doing the work. And I didn't even think that she knew she said that because a week later I said, I don't even know if you knew you said this, but this is what you said. And she was like, you know what? You're right. And I said, do you think you would have been thinking along those lines a year ago? And she said, probably not. It's not because I've been doing this work that I can now understand your lived experience. Mm. You know? Mm. (laughs) We love it. We love to hear it. This is what it's about. That's that's what we're working with. That's what we're working with. I'm so here for that. Oh yeah, no, this is beautiful. And the thing is that multiplied I don't know how many times, but just multiply. That multiply. That's basically what we're looking for. <laughs> that's what we want. That's what, more of that, please. I'll yeah. take. I'll take more of that. If if I can have more of that, that's that's all good for me. Yeah. Anyway, it's been a joy. I love Absolutely. talking to you. We've talked for so long just now. I'm not gonna. Obviously. I'm gonna start alluding to episodes. I'm gonna a part two follow ups. You lot put it in the chat. I don't know how you lot are commenting on this. Put it in the comments somewhere. <laughs> tweet, tweet. I don't know how you lot connect with Sandra. Tweet her. Uh, you know what you like to do. But let her know that. If you want to hear part two, I'm here for it. Do you know yeah, what I'm saying? Definitely. So, yeah. Tell people where they can find you. Cool. So, I mean, LinkedIn, obviously, that's always a good place. Lewis Howell. So, L-O-U-I-S is how Lewis is spelt. So, spelt like Louis. And then Howell's H-O-W-E-L-L. I'm also on Twitter as at Mr. Lewis Howell. So, M-R Lewis Howell. Same thing on Instagram if people use Instagram. Do people give out their email address on your podcast, Sandra? Because I'm actually open to that. Do you get what I'm trying to you say? You know what? Go for it. Let yeah, 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 yeah. So Lewis at lewishowell.com. Do you know what I mean? So L-O-U-I-S at L-O-U-I-S-H-O-W-E-L-L.com. And then, yeah, like 7PK. You can find 7PK on LinkedIn. You can find 7PK on Twitter. I think we're 7PK underscore tweets. And then, you know, Revolution Hive is on Instagram. And Revolution Hive is also on LinkedIn. And you can also go to revolutionhive.com. So www.revolutionhive.com. 7pk is 7pk.co.uk. So yeah, that's that. I think that covers it all, you know. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Lewis. It's been such a joy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sandra. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at necessary underscore rebels underscore pod. This was an II Studios production. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and give us any feedback as we're always trying to be better. And stay tuned for our next episode.